Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Hello, this is Jeffrey Schaub. You know, it's hard to believe that this coming Monday it will have been one year since a series of devastating fires fueled by high winds cut through tens of thousands of acres across Sonoma and Napa counties, Mendocino and Lake counties too. In all, nearly 9,000 structures were destroyed. 41 people died, 24 of those in Sonoma County. Santa Rosa endured unprecedented disaster, entire communities destroyed. It's been a long road since then, with many more miles to go. And with that in mind, this past Wednesday, we visited Santa Rosa City Hall to speak with that city's mayor, Chris Corsi. Thanks so much for being with us today. What do you remember what your your feelings were at that time? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Jeffrey. I appreciate it. Um, you know, it seems like so much longer ago than a year. That night, I was asleep like almost everyone in Santa Rosa was at the time. Uh, I got a call from um, our deputy city manager. Uh, I, I believe it was about 2.30 in the morning. And um, she told me that there was a fire, that uh, the emergency operations center had been activated. It didn't take very long, though, for me to realize that um, my bedroom smelled like smoke. I sleep with my windows open. It was a warm night. It was windy outside. And I, and I heard the traffic on my street. And I live on a, a street that has traffic during the day, but not at 2.30 in the morning. And the traffic outside my window was heavier than it was during rush hour. Um, I got up and looked outside, saw that there were a lot of cars on the roads, and at that point I started hearing explosions. was, you know, wondering what that was all about, and I you could hear things popping off in the distance. And f- finally figured out that there was a big fire, and that what I was hearing was uh, propane tanks, people's backyard barbecues blowing up. So, of course, then uh, the city was torn apart in ways no one could ever have imagined I bet you were dashing around the city that night, were you not? Or were you in the emergency operations center? Actually, neither. And it's kind of part of the story of what I tell other elected officials when they ask me what they can learn from this event. What I tell them is to know what your role is in an emergency and know what your role is not. I did not have a role in the emergency operations center. And when I, when I eventually did go there, it was clear that I was in the way. My instinct, and and I've been a journalist for 30 years, or that was my career for 30 years before I got into this crazy business, but my instinct was to go out and find out what was going on. At the same time, I knew that my responsibility was to be telling people, don't be going out and trying to see what's going on. You're going to become part of the problem. So I had to to reel myself in a little bit. I had to um, accept that uh, I wasn't going to be able to go out and say, I'm the mayor, damn it, I'm going through your your evacuation lines here. And that I wasn't going to be able to get all the information that I really needed and wanted 
as fast as I needed and wanted it. So uh, at about 6 o'clock on the morning of, of August 9th, Monday morning, I started getting calls from the media. And, you know, I've been part of the media. I've dealt with the media all my life, but I've, there's nothing that I've ever experienced like this. The, the first calls I had were from ABC and ABC. One of them is, is the one that you know of on Channel 7, and the other was from Australia. Uh, then I got CBC from Canada, BBC from Great Britain, and I didn't have the information that they were looking for. And, you know, it wasn't just the media that was looking to me to find out what was going on. It was the people who live in my city as well. And I was very frustrated. There were some tense back-and-forth calls between me and some staff. Uh, but the problem was is that we didn't have a good handle on what was going on because there was so much. This was the, the classic disaster when things are in chaos, and they were in chaos for a while. It was much more important for city staff, for our first responders, and everyone else who was working that night to protect, protect lives, not to get the mayor the information that he wanted. So I had to rely on other sources. What were some of the more immediate challenges and then the challenges in the ensuing days and weeks in responding to this? Well, again, when, you, when you're dealing with a true disaster, it means that you're overwhelmed. So I, I guess I would have to say we were overwhelmed in every way. Mm. I think that uh, the, the city, the, the people who work for this city, did a, a tremendous job, but we also lost a number of lives. We lost 3,000 homes. We lost significant pieces of city infrastructure. Things went wrong. There's, there's no smoothing that out. Uh, things went wrong. Things, things are broken. So the challenges were how to um, get out of that chaotic situation and into a how do we fix the things that are wrong situation. Mm -hmm. And I think that pivot happened fairly quickly, within the first couple of days. You know, for all the, the loss and the damage of this fire, we were actually very lucky. Uh, the way the fire came into our city that night, it was not stoppable. Um, I've heard our fire chief speak on a number of occasions about there was no way that his fire department was going to be able to stop that fire. Uh, he made a decision that night to protect lives, not property. And it's a tough decision. No fireman, no firefighter wants to lose houses. But uh, I believe that his decision saved a lot of lives. Firefighters were out there evacuating people, not trying to put out the fire. Mm -hmm. If you look at some of the videos that night, you'll see uh, places where fire trucks are parked in front of a house, pouring water into raging flames. And they might as well have been spitting on that house. There's no way they were going to put out a fire that was that big, that was being um, fanned by 60 and 70 mile an hour winds, that, that had so much energy and force behind it. It was just too big and too fast for, to deal with. Where the luck came in was that when the sun came up, the wind dropped. And that made all the difference. Uh, who knows how long this thing would have, would have kept going if the winds had kept up as strong as they were that night. You're listening to In-Depth. 
My guest today is Santa Rosa Mayor Chris Corsi, and of course it uh, goes without saying why we're doing this program today, because we're coming up on the one-year anniversary of what some people call the wine country fires, others speak to them as their individual names, the Tubbs fire, the Nuns fires, the Atlas fire, and that kind of a thing. Uh, there's been tremendous, or there was, well, there continues to be tremendous community support. And I think that's what a lot of people really remember about this. Everybody seemed to come together. Your thoughts about that? You know, Jeff, it really was amazing um, how quickly the community came out to help each other. And, you know, it, it shouldn't be surprising to anyone, but it's, it's always just heartening to see how people put, us, put aside their differences. They put aside their prejudices. They put aside their, their other interests when people are in need. Mm-hmm. On that Monday, uh, one of the things I did was I went to an emergency shelter at one of our local high schools, Elsie Allen High School. And I got there probably mid-morning, and, you know, the, the high school gym was, was full of people. And the minority of those people were actual fire evacuees. The rest were there to help. And, you know, it was, it was high school students. It was people from the neighborhood. It was people who came from other cities. There were medical professionals who were there volunteering. While I was standing there talking to uh, Mary Beth Stabline, the principal of Elsie Allen, a couple of men came up and they said, we have, a, we have a restaurant. We make pizzas. Uh, how many pizzas do you need for the shelter? And she said, I, I don't know. We've got, you know, this many people there. And they, and they said, is 75 pizzas enough? <laughs> and and the, the thing is, is that they were from a, chain, a small chain of pizzerias in Santa Rosa, Sonoma County called Mountain Mike's. One of their pizzerias had burned down that night. So this was within hours of them losing one of their restaurants. They're out in the community asking how they can help other people. It was just amazing. Let's get down to nuts and bolts right now. You know, a year later, as you know, in Coffee Park, there are several hundred homes that are either being built or in the planning stage or have been permitted, right? If you go out there, it's it's really something to see all these homes going up. PG&E worked very hard for months to get the, the power lines and the, and the trenches dug and all that kind of thing. So Coffee Park is coming back to life, but Fountain Grove, which is on the city's, what should we say, northeast part of town? Okay, Fountain Grove is a, a hilly area, a, a lot of very nice homes. So if you drive through Fountain Grove, there are very few homes that I can see under construction. What's the reason for this disparity between these two neighborhoods? There are actually a number of reasons. Um, first of all, Coffee Park, the debris cleanup started there, and it was completed there first, before Fountain Grove. And everything in Coffee Park is simpler than in Fountain Grove. Coffee Park is uh, on the flats. Uh, it was uh, built in the 80s and 90s primarily, um, primarily tracked homes. And a lot of builders out there are doing tract-style housing again. They're, they're building a number of homes. They're using variations of, of a single f- floor plan like you would build a, a tract subdivision. So it's easier. Um, Fountain Grove is uh, mostly custom homes. They're on um, lots that have elevation changes. Uh, you've got complicated foundations. And it's had some complications uh, in the recovery. We had a pretty well-publicized water issue in Fountain Grove after the fire. A significant portion of that community, we found benzene had contaminated the water system. First, we thought we were going to have to replace that uh, water system, the entire system, for 350 homes. 
at a at a cost that you know was thirty or forty million dollars at the time, uh, just ballparking it. Since then, we've we've done a tremendous amount of work trying to figure out how that happened, how it can be corrected. We've replaced not the whole water system, but the service lines that go from the main line to the to the water meters on those approximately 350 houses or so. We've done that at a cost of about six or seven million dollars. It seems to have worked. We're in the process of lifting the the water advisory, so that should not cause any more delays in in rebuilding in that neighborhood. Uh, the water is fine there now, but that did cause a delay. The other thing is. I think a lot of people are are trying to decide whether they can afford to rebuild and and whether they actually want to rebuild back in that area. Fountain Grove is in what's called the the wildland urban interface. It, uh, it it's on the top of a ridge. A lot of it is on the top of the ridge. Other parts of it are close to the top of that ridge, and um, it's known to be a a risky place for fire. Actually. Fountain Grove has done a good job over the years. The regulations up there require fire fire safety measures. It's been awarded, it's received awards as a fire safe community. They've done a good job, but again, that night, this was an unusual fire. It started 12 miles away. It was it was blowing at 60 and 70 miles an hour across that ridge. Uh, so even with a fire safe community, even you know making sure all those uh, defensible spaces are are cleared, it wasn't enough. So it's interesting. I spent part of the morning with a CAL FIRE official, and he he showed me some uh, Google Earth images of Fountain Grove. And he said, you know, when that fire roared through there, and, and it really roared through there, right? He said it really wasn't so much the vegetation that fueled the fire as it was the homes not being as fire resistant as we would like them to be. And then he showed me a picture of a home off Mark West Springs Road, which had a stucco exterior and the vents the air vents were built in such a way that embers from the fires couldn't get inside and that home you know was pretty much untouched compared to the homes around it and so that begs the question with people rebuilding homes in Fountain Grove are they going to have to meet stricter standards so that when you have these embers that come from the fire and they land on these houses around them that we're not going to have that problem as much again Absolutely, homes that are rebuilt have to meet stricter codes. Every um, one of the one of the costs that people face in rebuilding is that they they have to bring up bring their homes up to current code, and current fire code is much more stringent than it was when certainly more more than when Coffee Park was built, but also more stringent than when Fountain Grove was was built. We've we've had some study sessions at the council about those those code improvements. I don't want to pretend like I'm a fire expert, but it's really interesting to see what did burn and what didn't burn in those areas, because some of it was just random. Some of it may have been because of construction methods, but we also saw thousands of cars burn in this fire. Uh, you know, they they don't have wooden, <laughs> wooden shingles on the roofs or anything like that. Uh, this was an unusual fire. Where do we go from here? What concerns you? Honestly, Jeffrey, my, my biggest concern is is the people who are still struggling with recovering from this fire. People ask me all the time, how how is Santa Rosa doing? How's the re- recovery going? And it's it's a really difficult question for me to answer because on the on the the big scale, 
we're doing well. I think we're we're moving forward. Um, we've got uh, about 1,200 homes that are in the permit and construction process. About two dozen homes have been completed. We're we're doing better with the numbers than we thought we would be a year from the fire. But while we've got 1,200 homes in the construction and permitting process, that leaves 1,800 homes that aren't. And I hear from people every day who are still struggling with trying to figure out if they have enough money to rebuild. A lot of people were underinsured when this fire hit. Construction costs are, are through the roof. People are struggling with, a lot of people are just still just struggling to get their lives together after losing everything they owned, you know, within the space of a few hours. Older people who never had any intention of, of building a house for their future. They thought they had the house for their future. People who lived in mobile home parks, particularly one mobile home park where there are 44 mobile homes still standing, those folks, they can't live in those mobile homes and their insurance companies won't help them because their, their mobile homes didn't burn. But they're uninhabitable because the park is closed, there's no utilities. Those are the things that concern me. The individuals who are still struggling, who have not uh, really begun to recover from what happened almost a year ago. And a lot of people have literally fleed the community, right? They couldn't find enough jobs here or you know, they couldn't afford to live here. And that makes me wonder, are we losing our talent? Are we losing our, our workforce here? Certainly to some extent, the answer is yes. I can't say whether it's a lot of people uh, because we don't have any data on that. There was a story in the paper the other day and uh, you know the, the estimates were 7,000 people have left the community. The way that they came to that conclusion, I'm not sure how scientific that was. I know anecdotally that people have left the community. People I know, uh, friends of mine, you know, I hear stories all the time that people have left. And losing anybody because of this is sad. It is a loss. We do lose talent. We lose the kind of people who come to each other's aid when when people need it. Uh, so, yeah, th that's a problem. I wish I knew what the extent of that was, but um, I know that it is happening. We're talking to Santa Rosa Mayor Chris Corsi. We're in his office here at the Santa Rosa City Hall. You're listening to In-Depth. Are we still having a problem attracting um, contractors and workers to come in here and build, rebuild these homes? You know, I don't hear as much about that now as I did before the work started. So it's not something that's, that's on my radar right now, but uh, I would have to defer to you know, the, the general contractors who actually are looking for those, those employees. I don't know that we've reached the peak of reconstruction yet. As I said, there's, um, in Santa Rosa, there's less than half of the burned houses are, are back in the construction process now. So when more than half are in that process, you know, we'll need more workers. I think we'll need more workers to create new housing, not just replacement housing, because that's been a real emphasis of the council is to make sure that we're not only paving the way to help people rebuild, but that we build new housing at the same time, that we don't lose the momentum that we had going into this fire of actually creating more housing in Santa Rosa, because 
this was a problem before the fire, and it's an even bigger problem now. So we're recording this on a Wednesday, and this was the day that the national alert system sent out an alert on our cell phones. Did you get one? I got one. I did, yeah. Okay. And it was a presidential test, and that leads to this. Of course, there's been discussion for almost a year now about, you know, how we didn't have the resources to alert everyone in the county and in the city, that there was this firestorm headed their way, or the services or systems weren't implemented to the extent that they should have been. What kind of progress are we making on that front? I think there's been a lot of progress made. Um, in fact, the city and the county just a couple weeks ago did a test of, of our, our own emergency alert systems. It's, it's a little bit difficult for me to address this because when the fires came last, last year, the city was not in control of, of the alert system. It was the county. And this has been, you know, hashed out uh, in a number of forums uh, in the press. Uh, Cal OES, uh, Office of Emergency Services, put out a report. There, there was a failure to use the available tools to alert people mm -hmm. to this fire. Um, this is probably the biggest lesson that's been learned from the fire, is to make sure that we, we are ready to use all those tools in the future. We have a number of different ways to, to let people know when there's an emergency happening. The, the best way is the same way we got the alert on our phones from the federal government today. It's the wireless emergency alert system. It's the amber alert system that the state uses. It uh, makes a noise on your cell phone whether you have it on or off, and that was not used last year. However, I think we lost, what, 60 cell phone towers or something like that between the county and the city? I, I, I think I'd heard that number. Yeah, I, I think it, 70 is a number that I've heard, but in that range, a lot. So you really need to have redundancy, don't you? Wasn't there talk about actually putting up sirens like they have in San Francisco? Yeah, and there's still talk about that. Uh, the county is looking at it. The city is looking at it. Uh, no decisions have been made yet. The The fact is, is that there's no single alert system that's going to work for everybody. Uh, the best alert that worked on the night of the fires was neighbors knocking on neighbors' doors. Uh, and we can't rely on technology uh, to take care of all of this because technology is going to fail, as you point out, with the cell, cell towers going down. So, but we need to use every tool that we can and not, not leave any sitting in the toolbox off to the side unused in a situation like that. Do you feel like the state uh, has stepped up to the plate, that they get it? Are they doing enough to kind of address what's happened here and do their best to make sure it doesn't happen in other cities and counties around the state? Um, you know, the state and, and the federal government have been good partners through this, through this whole thing. We had top officials from, from both state and the feds here on the ground within a couple of days of the fire. They have other things on their plates now. You know, the, the fire in Redding this, uh, this past summer was very similar eerily similar to what happened in Santa Rosa. So has anybody done anything to prevent this from happening again? I don't know. I don't know that we can prevent fires like this in the future. What we can do is be better prepared for them, and I think that, I think that we will be. All right, so there's an event coming up. Well, there are a lot of events in Santa Rosa and Napa and I'm sure Mendocino County and coming up this, uh, this week, and you're probably going to go to a number of them. But there's a 
big one that's going to take place at Courthouse Square on Tuesday evening. What can we expect? I think that, uh, well, I'm not sure what we can expect at that event. Uh, you say it'll be a big event, and it, and it might be. Um, it, it may or may not be, honestly. Uh, people will come if they choose to observe the, the anniversary in that way. I've heard a lot of people say that they don't want anything, that they want to do it with their family and their friends. I know that there are a number of um, kind of block party type of, of um, observances that are planned, people getting together with their neighbors in their neighborhood, whether their home's being built there or not, uh, you know, just getting back together in their neighborhoods. The event in Courthouse Square is going to be um, fairly low-key. It's not going to be a lot of pomp and circumstance and speeches. It'll be an observance of an anniversary. Uh, there'll be some availability of, for people to express themselves with art, chalk art, on the on the pavement of the square. Um, there'll be a ringing of, of a fire bell to commemorate the loss of lives. But for the most part, we're having an observance not a um, certainly not a celebration. What would you like people to remember about this event? What do you want people to think about this event looking back at it a year later? I think the most important thing to um, take away from this is that it can happen here, and it can be anything. Um, you know, the news is is full of of disaster all the time. We had the tsunami last week, in, or this week in Indonesia, last week. Uh, you know, there, there were these fires, there are hurricanes, and you kind of become inured to it. You see it happening over and over again. And, oh, isn't that terrible? Nobody thinks it's going to happen to them. And I include myself in, in that. You know, I went through emergency training uh, as, as the mayor, as, as an employee of city government, and you do it online, and you check the box, and you get the answer, and you just want to get through it, and then you're through with it. What people should take away from this is that it can happen, and it probably will happen. If you live in California, it's likely that you're going to face a fire, an earthquake, a mudslide, or a flood at some point in your life. And if you're not ready, you're going to pay for it. So... Think about what you're going to do when disaster strikes. Uh, pay attention when you hear there's a red flag warning. Uh, it means you need to be aware. Your ears should go up and you should be prepared. Chris Corsi is the uh, mayor of Santa Rosa. Thank you so much for being with us on In-Depth. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Beginning Monday morning and continuing throughout the week, KCBS will be airing a series of special reports, first by looking back at the dramatic moments during the hours and days after the North Bay firestorms broke out. Our reporters will explore the personal stories of those impacted and how they're doing a year later. And we will look at what steps local, regional, and statewide agencies are taking to adapt to California's changing climate and the increased threat of larger and more destructive wildfires, and what you should do to protect yourself, your families, your property. I'm Jeffrey Schaub. Thanks for listening. 
You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for All News 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.